Probably science. I'm Matt Kershen. I am Andy Wood. We we are we are Jesseless today because we we had to schedule this episode around the time we could nab Robin Ince mid you you were in America and then Canada and you're briefly back in the UK before you restart the second half of your North America tour. Robin, you you're doing a ludicrous number of things. So um, Robin's been on the show before, friend of the show. You'll probably know him from things like Infinite Monkey Cage and various book-based tours and various book-based books that he's written book-based and books. all sorts of science and literary comedy things. Just all-around all amazing things. It's Hey, Robin, how are you? Well, do you know what? I think we've, we've shown ourselves up very badly with the fact that, you know, physicists are trying to understand the nature of time and the reason that this has ended up being such an awkward one with Jesse not being able to do it is we couldn't understand even the nature of a 24-hour clock and the time differences <laughs> yeah. between LA and London. So the idea that we're ever going to get some Einsteinian comprehension of what's going on, I, I think, <laughs> is, is way off until we've actually worked out how our watches are ticking. Um, but I'm very good, yeah. It's been really... It, it was I mean, it's been fascinating being like properly back on the road uh, with Brian. Yeah, you Cox. and Brian Cox are, are crisscrossing North America at the moment. Yeah, and always just missing the favourite bands. You know, there's that thing where I don't know if you ever do that when you're on tour and you always go, ah, oh, there's that band. Ah, oh, the band. Of two. Like I think last time the two bands that Judas Priest were playing about three days always before us, and they have the same sound technician as we have, which is wonderful because the sound technician, uh, you know, has to deal with when he's doing them. He's like, breaking the law, breaking the law, bow bow, <laughs> and with us obviously it's just the universe is filled with beautiful things so it's kind of very different in terms of its uh, of, of its timbre and then i think three days behind us were the specials the wonderful uh, band from from oh. coventry ghost town etc um but no it's just it's been really we, we ended up in salt lake city which uh, as i was saying to you before it's just it was really i'd been in lo- lots of the cities now are just enormous glass buildings so you, you you it's very hard to see the sky and i always get lost in every city that we go to even though we might only have like Indianapolis, we only had six hours, but that gave me enough time to get to the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, obviously, which was a delight. Um, but I always try and get slightly lost, you know, so I can see something which isn't merely in the shadow of a glass building. But but I've got, Salt Lake City was just... And I had the greatest bookshop, this bookshop just called Utah Books and Magazines, run by a, a brother and sister, which I just loved eavesdropping before I even started browsing. But, yeah, it's been really interesting coming back and, and the kind of... I, I think audiences... I don't know, after two years of COVID, and in some ways also, I think with COVID, it's been quite a fast track of science learning or not learning, depending on the person, right. in terms of the process, because I feel that some of the reception of some of the ideas we're talking about, I think, have been helped for the kind of audience we have with the fact they've watched the idea that science is not the right idea, but the least wrong idea. They've watched that in motion, that they've seen in March 2020 scientists saying something and then saying, oh, I see the story is different in May because the evidence has changed and the body of knowledge has changed. Of course, on the alternative side, the people who aren't coming to the show are the people who presumed that once science gave an answer, if it in any way changed, it meant that science itself was null and you know void so it's been been interesting to see yeah well well that well that concept is depending on who your teachers were at school is something that was either well explained to you or just sort of left you feeling betrayed like like even it was actually one of our guests quite recently who was talking about just feeling like they lie to you each stage at science like like they tell you in, in science at school 
a, an atom looks like this, mm. and they sort of draw a picture, and it looks a little like a little solar system with a with a nucleus and some electrons go. Or actually, first it look it doesn't even look like that. It looks like a couple of footballs connected by sticks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and then you find out that each of those footballs looks like a little solar system, and then they tell you actually each little solar system isn't like just little circles. It's actually these orbits that are these different shapes. There's these the, there's these like first orbit that has clouds. two, and then these sort of like almost like clover shaped orbits that go around it, and then you have uh, these different shells, and then and then they go. Actually, it's not really orbits at all. It's just sort of like a sort of probability field where, at any given moment, the an electron sort of has a vague probability of existing in this area, but also you can't ever know where it is. But that can be explained to you in a way of like this is like the evolution of human thought, and we're just getting closer and closer to the truth. Or it can be, or it can come across as just. Uh, no, we lie to you at each stage of this, and actually every time a scientist is talking to you, they're bullshitting. Well, that, I think, is a very... I, I would agree. I think there is a real... I think one of the most important things to be taught is that idea that science is a process and science is progressing and each answer is not 100% right, but hopefully each answer becomes slightly less wrong than before. And I also think there's yeah. a real trick missed by... I mean, Niels Bohr, who, of course, said many uh, wonderful things, uh, you know, Niels Bohr would talk about the fact he said that everything that is real is ultimately made of something that is not real. Now, imagine being told that when you're 13, 14. That would be, suddenly, the game is on. The game is not just some diagrams with a supposed certainty or whatever way. The game becomes something which is so... I, I think that would draw people in rather than actually... Because it, it it has a level of fascination which was never delivered to me when I was doing science at school. Um, right, and science at school is presented as, like, right and wrong. You know, it, when you're when you're sort of 11 and you get asked, what does an atom look? like and you if you don't draw the thing that looks like a solar system you get a big cross next to it yeah. and it turns out that actually if you do draw that that's also wrong yeah i th i think there's a lot of i mean one of it certainly in the uk or i would say english and and, and welsh uh, education system i think we've become really hung up i don't know as well in the us really hung up on just being able to answer questions and so yep. it's something i've talked about before it, it becomes that you arm people to be a quiz team but not to be possible nobel prize winners you you don't give them enough of an adventure you just give them a bunch of answers and i think you know there's, there's was a book I wrote recently called The Importance of Being Interested and I spoke to lots of brilliant people about that and Jana Levin who are, have you spoken to Jana Levin do you know Jana she she is a yeah. friend of the show of course, she's our yeah. go-to we get we, she, she's actually the reason I first got introduced to Neil deGrasse Tyson and ended up doing his show which is any listeners who came through to us through Star Talk is thanks to Jana but also at any time we're stuck on a black hole question or anything to do with gravity or cosmology uh she's she's the one who bails us out oh with she's her so brilliance. good and i would re if, if people out there haven't read how the universe got got its spot is such a great book because not only is it a book looking at the nature of the universe the structure of the universe and why it is as it is but it's also a kind of diary of her going through quite a troublesome time while she lived in a seaside town in england with her partner and what was going on so it has this human story that runs through also the story of the universe which again i think is a very very important part of the story to tell but um yeah Jana, when i was talking to her and i can't remember which you might know this there was a nobel prize winner who said the reason that he managed to get where he did was every day when he got back from school the first question his mother would ask is did you ask any good questions today 
and i think oh that's great that is and it's like i was talking to oh man i've forgotten his name because i'm still quite jet lagged uh author of lemony snicket uh wonderful daniel hand daniel, daniel handler? handler yeah and i was talking to daniel handler and daniel handler said he said one of the reasons that i'm glad i was brought up jewish is when you're brought up jewish you're allowed to answer a question with a question and i think that is so important in I mean, something that brian and i talk about both actually in in, in the show we're currently touring which is science is not about answers as much as it's about growing new questions so each time you get to an answer such as the idea of understanding the higgs field it doesn't mean that you immediately shut down the large hadron collider it means that you go good that's an answer oh man that's a lot of questions have grown out of that keep it running yeah that to me is is the important thing and we really need to you know one thing that i would bang on about endlessly and i won't i promise today is critical thinking and the understanding of why certain answers exist why why they might change, uh, who to trust. All of those things are something that we saw in such brilliant and terrible detail over the last two years. That's a great point. Also, just as, as someone who was raised Jewish as well, that does make that does make a lot of sense. And also, um, even Jewish scholarship. And I and I, 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 it, it, I I'm uncomfortable with it because Jewish scholarship is based on analyzing the bible and what they believe to be the word of god and that's something i believe is bullshit and doesn't exist and and so on um and i'm also thinking if there's a bit which i'm sure you've read in uh surely you're joking mr Feynman, uh where he talks about an argument he had with a jewish scholar where uh he was trying to explain how to use an elevator how to use mm. a lift on the sabbath uh where um uh Using any kind of electric button, turning on a light or whatever is banned on the Sabbath because it's one of the forms of work because the rabbis decided uh, it counts as starting a fire. Uh, turning on an electric light, turning on an electric switch can cause a spark, which is a fire, and starting a fire is one of the prohibited forms of work on the Sabbath. Um, and he was just like, uh, oh, well, you can if you put a condenser across this circuit, then you can prevent any spark from happening. Uh, you know, a physicist. I'll, I've solved this now. I've just basically <laughs> solved this problem for all Jews. Every Jew can now can now use electricity on on the Sabbath thanks to me, brilliant Jewish but atheist physicist uh, uh, Richard Feynman. And um, and, and he he describes in the book how he wasn't prepared for sort of the level of Jewish rabbinical scholarship where he sort of backflipped his way out of that solution with <laughs> with effortless ease. Um, but so so that that's the big caveat that I'm putting in there first when I'm talking about Jewish scholarship. But all Jewish scholarship is based on on questioning and repeated questioning and picking apart the arguments. It's not just sort of taking what a rabbi wrote a thousand years ago as fact, although that is also part of it. But it's also about endlessly arguing and nitpicking and discussing and bickering. And and there are like the Talmud and other books of Jewish scholarship are just full of basically arguments between learned rabbis and questions and questions and questions and asking. And I wonder whether that is a reason why Jewish people have traditionally been overrepresented in in the sciences. There's such you know, I mean, it's not just the sciences, is it? I look back now and I think of the number of people on my bookshelf uh, and the number of heroes right. that I have. Uh, who, you know, whether it's Franz Kafka, whether it's Carl Sagan, whether it's the uh, anarchist historian Howard Zitt, you know, all of those people. 
And I do think that there is something interesting, that idea, first of all, the nature of the question, and secondly, also being on the outside. You know, I mean, to me, it is still an amazing thing with Feynman that, uh, you know, the reason he didn't get through to his first choice university was because the Jewish quota had been filled, you know, and we, and we should not forget that this is very recent history this kind of you right. know, madness but I, I, I think so I think that idea of being on the outside as well I, I, I don't know but it really fascinates me because I, I always just that, look at that definitely and yeah I'm sure that's that and that's also why Jewish people were overrepresented in comedy and then like a generation later it, it's like whatever the most sort of oppressed minority is at any given time half a generation later they pretend to produce the best comedians so if you look at like sort of like the Jewish comedians who came through in the sort of Borscht Belt era and then the African-American comedians of the sort of 70s and going on 80s and 90s, you know, from like prior to Chris Rock and so on. And like now there's uh, like an increasing amount of really good co- comedians coming through from like Asian com- comedians. And there's some amazing uh, LGBT comedians. Like there's a whole wave of some, like great trans comedians who that wasn't even a thing like there were maybe like two of them a generation ago and now there's loads who are really good and it's just yeah like half a generation after a a community gets shat on uh i'm not saying you should shit on a community but but once it happens you normally get some pretty good comedy out of it a generation later yeah, well, it's an interest. I mean, uh, th- that we could go for the whole psychology module here. You you might know I, I wrote a book kind of about comedians and mental health and stuff. Right. And I do think that we should we should. By the way, you've got you've written like you seem to produce an amazing book every year at the moment. Well, I'm so trying. To, I'm trying. You know what? I don't like being bored and I don't like being lazy. And my brain never shuts up. And uh, so I just yeah. There's a, there's another one soon. And one day, hopefully, an American publisher will pick them up. Are you listening? Are you listening? Um, <laughs> and uh, but I I loved writing the book about mental health and comedy. And, and just lots of other things as well within that, which was partly down to uh, a documentary I made after Robin Williams died, and I saw some very lazy things being written, uh, kind of about comedians as a whole, and I, I wanted to tackle that, and also because he was obviously like like for many of us an enormous hero. And um, but that thing of I think for a lot of creativity, not fitting into the world is an important part of that. Feeling that the world is not the place for you means that you want to redraw the world whether that is through gags whether that is through painting whether that is through poetry whatever it might be and that's why also i wish you know more people i think everyone should create as much as possible because you know the moment that you just you know when you're battling against something to be able to turn it into something that has some solidity some dimensions you know if it's a poem for instance like there's a poem that i do in the new show with brian i did a poem in the last one and now i've written a new one it was great actually he said when we got to the new tour the last one i did a poem about the passing of time which I hadn't realized it, it kind of made people cry and stuff like that and 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 Brian when he went the next tour he said oh don't worry we'll just do roughly the same thing you've just got to write a new poem oh that's it <laughs> yeah that's easy yeah I'll just write another but fortunately one came, and, and again by writing this poem and it was shortly after I'd had a long discussion with someone about the nature of ADHD and stuff like that and some ideas of, that are going on in my own head and I just wrote this thing and it then meant that everything that you know all of those things that had no structure all of those barbs and those things that you bump into in the world if you can turn it into a story a poem an artwork whatever it might be you can now hold it in your hands you can now look at it you can now really interrogate it and i think that's something that's that can be very very useful for people whatever you know their their situation especially when they feel that they might be struggling in some way or other 
That makes total sense to me. How, how does that relate to, you were just saying with, with Robin Williams passing, it was just lazy, like, oh, sad comedian, as opposed to looking more in depth at the yeah, that, of what Yeah, that makes... was it, really. It was, I kept seeing these sad comedy things, and I thought, well, first of all, there's an enormous number of people who have are dealing with mental health issues who are not on the stage. And it immediately, and I think I'm very worried sometimes when sometimes mental health is turned into part of the melodrama of our great artists. So it means that other people who are just living their life or struggling or trying to live their life, um, they feel that they're not worthy of actually that you know oh well i can't be having this because this is the kind of thing that happens to great people and you go no it happens to ever so i wanted to kind of deal with that right um, that, well that's always been that's also been my problem with that whole sort of tears of the clown thing is just like people love it because because it has that irony and also because comedians talk about it but plumbers also get depression accountants get depression yeah, I mean, I think it's... I mean, annoyingly, the documentary that I made immediately after, uh, or, or a few weeks after, after Robin Williams had died, the one thing was they, they said, yes, you can make it, and yes, we're going to bump another documentary so we can put it on BBC and all of this stuff. But the one thing I couldn't win in that argument was I was allowed to make the show that I wanted, but what was the title? Was it Tears of a Clown? Tears of a Clown, yes. That was the one <laughs> thing that I could... But it was, you know, and, and I've, I find one of the... I mean, I think what we do have, the advantage of any of us who have some kind of public platform on is that what we are able to do is talk out loud. And we're allowed to... I was talking about this with my wife, actually, about one of the times... Sometimes I will be, you know, quite... I'd, I'd never collateral damage. I, I keep it very much to things that are going on in my own life, and I try as much as possible not to bring in my family. But, for instance, I was recently talking about the fact that I, I now take a thing called sertraline, which is kind of dealing with, you know, anxiety and other things. And someone said, oh, why do you talk about that aloud? I go, because I can. And then there's lots of people who get in contact and go, oh, I didn't realise that... Yeah, and I went, yeah, yeah, and and so it means other people can start. When I did the tour based around I'm a joke and so are you, every single night I would have people coming up to me who had a story to tell me, who had something they'd kept inside, you know, and that thing, that to me, that's another reason, something we were talking about before we started recording, that's what I love about positive comedy rather than comedy that punches down, is there is a way of being, I think, interesting and funny that also means that people leave feeling happier to be in the world and they feel you know and I think it's an incredible thing that can be done and some of the you know it's like watching Hannah Gadsby's Nanette or whatever it might be when you watch something like that there are people who have left that show and its importance has not been one hour of laughing or whatever it might be or as an entertainment its importance has actually meant that some of their life might be about to change in a good way and some of the conversations right. they can have are conversations they've never had before because they've seen someone who's actually standing on stage, someone who is presumed to be tremendously confident, talking about things in their life and talking about the way the world is. And I just, sorry, this is entirely the wrong podcast to do this on. This should obviously no, be it's comedians. Not. But I, I, I think it's a really, and in the same way, you know, when, when I do the shows about science, when I do solo shows about science, I want people to leave, like the, the book that I wrote, The Importance of Being Interested, one of the reasons I wrote it was I would often hear people say, oh, but science makes the world so cold and lonely. And, and I wanted to prove as much as I could that the more you find out about the universe, the more you find out about the fact that, you know, we are all connected 
on a tree of life that every living thing that we look at if we go back far enough we find somewhere you know our shared common ancestor that that entwining and entanglement is a beautiful thing and in the same way that when you look at the starlight and you realize that there was a point in the universe where basically as matter was being created everything was together there was this incredible connection of everything that went on to be whether it was planets whether it was a star whether it was you know a piece of moss whether it was a frog whatever it might be and I think and, and also those stories that can come out when you're dealing with death you know death people will often say oh but it's important you know you can come up with a pretend version instead say there's heaven if you're talking to kids it's easier and I had a you know when my son was was about seven years old he had that moment as many children have of going oh no you know I've just realized you're not going to be here forever I might not be here forever uh -huh. and what's the story you tell them and I th had to think really hard and eventually what I said to him was I said look the thing you need to know is anyone who tells you that they know what happens after we die is talking rubbish no one knows that's an important thing to know right from the beginning is anyone who has a certainty you need to know and then I could tell him that story that you know I'm sure you've both read in Carl Sagan and you know and and, and many other sites but you know that fact that every single atom we're made of has already had an enormous number of separate stories and has already been an enormous in an enormous number of different things both living and inanimate and after you die then those atoms will end up in an enormous number of things spread across the planet earth and eventually beyond the planet earth and eventually possibly back in stars and eventually perhaps sucked into black holes that there are a huge number of stories of every atom that you are and that turned out to be a comforting story that that, that, that gives us a that is story. a lovely thing i also think it's just nice if you just talk about like well you, you don't know what's going to happen after you but you do know what's going to happen to the things you do on earth mm. after you've gone like your your interactions with other human beings remain afterwards the any work that you put out into the world remains afterwards so you you're gone but your impression on the world remains there's a lovely thing, an actor called Paul Eddington, who uh, was in a very famous British TV series called Yes Minister and then Yes Prime Minister. And anyone who's a Christopher Lee fan or a horror film fan will also know that he's in The Devil Rides Out. And um, Paul Eddington was a Quaker. And in his final interview, when he was very ill with cancer and he knew he was going to die, and he was asked by the interviewer, how would you like to be remembered? And he said, I think I'd like to be remembered as he didn't do too much harm. And that do you know what that is it sounds like yeah. such a small thing but it's that idea that you that the the footprints that you have left have not bruised too many people and perhaps they've given people something to follow or so you know that to me is a, is a very kind of you know that you can have all of those beliefs i mean i sometimes think with science one of the problems we can have is that we can be very quick to throw away ideas of myth or you know i mean i think it's very interesting when you look at a, like a kind of a lot of uh different first nation groups and kind of uh indigenous groups a lot of the culture that has been dismissed as somehow very simplistic or primitive, for instance, in, in, in the Aboriginal uh, tribes in Australia, we find out there was an incredible complexity of story there. And that there was a way that there was science because you don't survive for that long, for instance, in a country like Australia without having an incredible level of ingenuity. You know, it's not an easy place to survive. Right. 
And now we've begun to realise that many of the myths that we, we used to think were silly stories actually had an incredible application to them. And also that many of those people that we believed believed in them literally, they didn't. They had a kind of superposition of belief, which was they knew that much of these things were myths and fables, much as we know some people view Old Testament stories, but also they were lessons of how to live with real knowledge about the nature of the stars and their movement and when crops should be planted and all of that kind of stuff. And I think, yeah, we have to not be shy of going, yes, here are the equations and here is the nearest we can come to saying this is the way the universe works. But that doesn't mean that we can't still play around with, you know, science itself is predominantly metaphors. You know, it's 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 metaphor. Yeah, you know, we we're never really seeing the exact universe. We're given better and better metaphors for what you know, like when you were talking about the atom, right? That, you know, that the, the atom that's a metaphor that's changed basically of our understanding of ultimately what makes you know mass in the universe and gives us what appears to be solidity. Yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. I'm actually studying right now to <clears throat> excuse me to be a uh, stargazing tour guide in the national park I live near up in, in Joshua Tree, and. Part of that, the most fun part of that for me is learning about actual astronomy, but I, you know, by necessity, I'm happy to learn about mythology because that's half of what people want to hear when they're there. They want to hear about constellations and the stories and some of these things, it's almost like a mnemonic where the useful thing was, like you said, learning when to plant. And you, you remember that based on the story of when Ursa Major, the big bear, is approaching the horizon, like the analogy was in some Native American cultures that this was when the bear was being slayed and as it's reborn in the spring, as it's starting to poke up at sunset, uh, that was the time to plant, I think. So I, I should know that story better by now. But And then also it sort of turns red as it's closer to the horizon and is passing through more atmosphere. And that's the blood of the bear that, that was killed in the fall. And then it rises again in the spring. And it's, yeah, there are these useful things to the stories. And they're almost like, like we use mnemonics to study yeah, science. Yeah. It doesn't mean those things aren't real. If you memorize the planets by a sentence that's gibberish that's not that much different from memorizing where this one constellation was based on thinking of it as a bear and seeing it rise at the time when you're supposed to plant so. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I totally agree. I remember talking with Neil Gaiman about a volcanic island, which, again, had this whole myth about the anger that lay under the rocks and all that kind of thing. But that myth, as you were just saying, what we did very foolishly, I think, many many of, 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 of those people who came and colonised different areas and sometimes committed terrible acts as well, um, what we did was we were so simplistic we could not imagine that actually, as you were saying... To if you just give someone the details of exactly the movement of Ursa Major and when, when to plant this and when to do that, they will fit. But if you give them a grand story, as you were saying, then it sticks. And I think that's the... It's like with a lot of things about geology. I was uh, I was talking to a geologist and we, he was talking about right in the Midlands of England when he was a little boy, he was in an area called the Peak District, which you might realise has some peaks. They're not very big peaks, by the way. It's England. And, uh, yeah, but, I mean, they're huge by British standards. Oh, yeah, you by look British at it and go, standards, like, they're terrifying. Practically Everest, basically. You can, yeah, there be dragons. You can, you can barely bicycle up them. <laughs> and, uh, oh, unicycling's impossible. Um, but it's... <laughs> Uh, you know, he saw this this strange outcrop that he was like really fascinated by when he was twelve years old, and eventually he found out that it was actually a coral reef. 
and he was like how can it be a coral reef this is the furthest point in this country from the sea there's no sea anywhere and then that was his first realization that even though we don't see the movement of the hills in our scale of existence everything is moving all the time and those hills are moving all the time and you know when i where i was brought up there was an enormous amount of chalk on the hills and of course all of that chalk was sea life and that story that realization of perpetual movement but perpetual movement is sometimes not in your frame of reference because you know that again that story has been turned into many different myths of caves and mountains but within that is also the heart of geology as well that's great and also clearly some some of it came from our you know smug smug western racist um assumption that's just well these people are so primitive that they must literally believe that every well they, they must believe that an actual bear is eating these is eating the hills that's the only thing when they're talking about that they must be literal yeah yeah because they can't have the sophistication to be speaking in in figurative terms about things that they understand on a deeper level yeah they're not even wearing trousers and that was it so that, <laughs> right. that you know our, our, our limited judgment based on sartorial elegance or inelegance yeah. was, uh, was where, where are their epaulets yeah <laughs> these these fools by the way this is a good time to transition into um more space talk perhaps i was curious robin what's your uh whether or not i'm sure the answer is yes whether you're excited about the james webb telescope and what sort of things excite you about it i saw that just as of yesterday it has started uh to track a moving target which is uh, i believe an asteroid i just link yes have they i i've lost i've lost track of that story have they it's fully deployed now the, the mirrors and everything are fully all the reflectors are fully out now right and it's in place yeah i think it was in a calibration stage and i just linked to a story if you look in the um show notes there robin about the fact that it is tracking an asteroid for the first time I just find, I mean, this is one of the things that I, in, in, in the show that we're doing at the moment, that we had a picture of the furthest galaxy that's ever been observed. But of course, in the time since we started doing the tour two months ago, there's now a further galaxy. Um, and just indeed, just our understanding of light itself and why we can observe what we can observe. So in a very broad way, what we are able to observe, what then actually becomes a ghost, because even though we're able to observe it, we realize that the time it has taken to travel there means that we will never ever see it again. All of those kind of illustrations from astronomy, to me, are fantastic for contextualizing not merely ourselves, but the universe as a whole. So I find those ideas alone utterly fascinating. You know, the, the, when you see a, that blurry image of an ancient galaxy and then you just think, right, so that, that's, that's the last picture because it's moved on now and it's moved on beyond any distance that means, you know, that light will never be able to, to, to reach us. That was the last snapshot we could have of that ghost galaxy. Things like that, uh, I, I find, uh, will overwhelm me pleasantly but still make me dizzy. Yeah, like you think about something that, that the light took 13 billion years to reach us. It doesn't mean that thing is sitting 13 billion light years away from us. It's sitting maybe twice that far now as the universe itself expands. And I think also just those whole things where we, you know, we have such a... It's very hard, many of the ideas that we talk about in terms of the universe and cosmology, to picture them. One, one of the questions that gets asked most often is, what is the universe expanding into? And of course, we can't really... If you try and picture the universe alone expanding into nothing or indeed a nothing that exists before everything exists or the potential of everything we 
don't have the imagination to be able to do that. You know, you can't imagine nothing. You can't know. And, and, I, and I right. think, again, the more that we're able to build up our pictures of what builds our universe, what speeds through our universe, what travels you know, away from all, all of those things will... I think they're, they're predominantly of philosophical importance, actually, as well, in, in, in a big way. There's, there's an interesting thing that, that pragmatically many of these discoveries... Uh, well, they probably will end up, of course, making lots of money in their own way because most of these technologies, even when they're built for grand ideas that actually will appear to have nothing pragmatic about them within them as well, like, you know, space missions, etc. There's normally offshoots that you go, oh, don't worry, it's made its money back as well. But I think, to me, that, that perspective and that smallness and realising that that smallness is not an issue, that that's not... You know, we, we don't need to worry about how small we are in the size of the universe. We need to worry about whether we can find our way around the place that we live in, but also have right. a, a separate perspective for our own philosophy of what it is to be the curiosity that exists in the universe, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, there was, by the way, it, it slightly up, but not fully off topic. Um, about a month ago, I, I never knew this. And then Katie Mack, I was Astro Katie on Twitter. I'm sure a bunch of you follow Katie. Um, and it uh, posted something. And then someone underneath posted a, a little animation display of how it works that they'd made. Um, this uh, little cosmology fact that when you have galaxies of the same size at different distances, Beyond a certain distance, the further away the galaxy is, the bigger it appears in the sky. Yeah, what? that bit blows my mind every time. That whole thing about the fact that the, because the universe was the size that it was uh, at the time that the light was being... that, that it, I think it is it in her book, The End of Everything. It's certainly... It's something which is a great book, and I hope most of you listening to this have, have, have read The End of Everything. It's a, a book that is both, both witty and tremendously enlightening. I think Kate is utterly brilliant. Um... But yeah, that that bit, I my brain still does little somersaults around trying to work out exactly how because even light but, having a speed, to be honest, it's a difficult thing to comprehend. It, yeah, you know, we if, look at if you look space. at the uh, the link there that I, sorry, Andy. Oh no, that was that was Robin. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, Robin. Oh um, no, go on. If, if if you look at the link I just posted, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. That someone someone made a little animation uh, and posted it underneath uh, Katie's original tweet. Um, that sort of demonstrates how it, it, it made it made sense to me, and it is because of the way the things are traveling away, uh, and the yeah, universe is expanding yeah. at the same time. I'm watching it animate uh, right now. I have 24 seconds left. So this is the, this is the reason why you said as a galaxy gets farther away, it'll look larger in the sky. Yeah, up to a certain point. So because because of the because things are because the universe is expanding and things are moving away and so it's taken that much longer to get to you uh it means that at a certain point like as as things go away as things are further away at first it's the normal way perspective works where the further away something is the smaller it appears because the uh more of the field of vision it it uh it potentially takes up you know the way the light can sort of branch out um but at a certain point because of the expansion, because of how much further it's had to travel, because of the expansion of the universe, because it's been traveling away from us, uh, it starts to look bigger. And I'm not explaining it very well, but if you look at this animation, it will explain it significantly better. Yeah, wondering. Um, Astro. I don't know if we have any of you've... our viewers who who can't see. Uh, if if we have uh, listeners rather who uh, are visually impaired, then I apologize because I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it. It's hard. Yeah, I, I think I understand what the dots represent in this animation, but it is a mind bender. Yeah. It's 
Well, we have, we, we, you know, generally the way that we view the world is so such a limited way, isn't it? We have such a small frame of reference. In, and, and so that once you start to get onto a cosmological scale, and once you start to get, you know, people, I always find it difficult to understand the fact that, you know, once you get, you know, that the universe itself can expand faster than the speed of light, but it's not really expanding fast. It's just that blah, blah, dip, 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 dip. And then you go, but hang on a minute, but you told me nothing could expand, for, you know, could move faster than the speed of light. Well, it's not actually moving faster than the speed of light. You see, the reason that it actually is going further than if it was traveling at the speed, and, and your brain will just, you know, you have to keep going back. That's why I always say there's not enough lectures and there's not enough you know kind of bits where they talk for 10 minutes and go let's have a break and look out the window for a while because actually if you sit through an hour-long science lecture certainly as a non-scientist you know, i remember brian cox once saying i was at a lecture he was doing and he suddenly turned to me and he went so what does that equal robin i said i don't know i'm not listening i'm still thinking about that thing you said seven minutes ago and it's a lovely idea so i'm just dealing with that and i'll catch up later on and yeah, that that's the uh, much of it is that dealing with the counterinstinctual, and then there's the other problem with it, which of course some things seem absurd, and then you have to realise that any absurdity that we see as we look at the universe is not the absurdity of the universe; it's the absurdity of the way that we imagine the universe should work. Physics and the science of the universe, none of that is absurd. It's only absurd from our perspective. Right. I, I keep thinking of, we had Neil deGrasse Tyson on a few years back, and he says uh, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. Yeah, which, yeah, um, yeah. I it's think sort of comforting, yeah. sort of sort of not, but yeah. yeah. it knows what it's doing. It's fine. It's, well, it doesn't know what it's doing, obviously. That's a terrible thing to tell you. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, that, that, that uh, and I think that's some of my favourite books about quantum mechanics, which of course always blows my mind, is there's one by um, Phil Ball. Philip Ball is a, I don't know if you've ever had him on, really fantastic writer, not just on science, actually. His most recent book was about myths and modern myths, but he, he uh, um, he's written quite a few science prizes, won quite a few science prizes, and he wrote a book called Beyond Weird, in which he said one of the problems we have with viewing quantum mechanics is we say that it's weird but it's not weird it is the way that of this behavior at this scale we must stop saying it's weird and and i can understand what he means by that you know that if, if the moment we say it's weird it almost gives us an alibi to go no further hey man that's just so crazy it's blown my mind and then we don't bother going any further because it's just become one of the things we put in the box of the weird sort of like calling the square root of negative one an imaginary number like well, oh man i said that that's, you're gonna see yeah. it took me ages and it was Jana again who helped me understand the different sizes of infinity we did a show about infinity quite a few years ago with a, a wonderful uh, radio and tv producer called john lloyd who was the guy who produced uh hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and, and wrote with uh, douglas adams as well and we had uh martin reese as well who's the astronomer royal and as he explained different infinities, John Lloyd was furious because he had been brought up in an arts education to be told that infinity is just infinity. And he could not... Mm -hmm. oh, what do you mean there's more than one infinity? And then when Janet explained it in that simple way of saying there are an infinite number of numbers, there are an infinite number of prime numbers, there are an infinite number of odd numbers, there are an infinite number of fractions between zero and one, then you suddenly get something which even though you will never be able to you know infinity is obviously a, a, an impossibility to picture because you cannot put walls around it but that starts to give you something to grasp just in that very simple thing because you can sit and you can start scribbling it down on a piece of paper and go oh yeah i see yeah yeah that that begins to make some sense of how infinity is infinity 
but not all infinities are as big as other infinities, but they are all infinite. Right, and all the ones you mentioned so far are the same size. It, it's well, a, no, it's no. Ones... The ones, uh, yeah. like, one of them was C that he mentioned. One was, like, Aleph null. Like, the counting numbers are Aleph null no, they're, infinity. They're, but... they're all, all of those ones are Aleph zero. All of those, including no, he, the he rational said, numbers. He said the, the number between zero and one, that's a C infinity, isn't it? Do you... Or all of the all of the rational numbers are all of the fractions are still are still countable. It's when you get to the real numbers that it becomes uncountable. No, it's not just adding. Wait. So. So you say only adding irrational I numbers never brings it to a larger. Up infinity. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible mistake. Yeah, it, it is. It, it that that's when it. Yeah. So 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 the way, but, but which by by the way, like, if if John Lloyd got annoyed by this um, notion. <laughs> He was, he was on the same team as some of the best, initially some of the best mathematicians of the, when was Cantor around? Was it the mid-19th century? Um, I think he's a bit later. But, he's slightly later than that. Because um, he had, I'm now trying to remember which, which eminent mathematician of his time basically drove him to the point of madness and basically bullied him into a state of like depression and insanity. Um, before Cantor was generally accepted, um, but he he starts off by talking about countability. So, like, what does counting? What does it mean to count something, um, and to be able to count something? And and he it defined it as counting is setting up a direct one to one correspondence between the set you're trying to count and the natural numbers. So the, the natural numbers are the counting numbers one two three four five, and if you can set up what, what's called a bijection, like a one-to-one direct correspondence both ways, so everything in one set corresponds to only one thing in the other and vice versa, then it's countable. So first you show that the set of even numbers is countable uh, and therefore the same size as the set of natural numbers because you can just you can set up the bijection where it's just like x and 2x. It's a function, one-to-one. Yeah. Exactly, a direct, a direct function. So you just... So then you show like, okay, the even numbers are the same size as all of the numbers, even though, and so are the odd numbers for the same reason. So even though odd numbers plus the even numbers gives you the counting numbers, they're all the same size. So those infinities are all the same size. Uh, But you can can map rational from that? Yeah. So so to add rational numbers, you basically have to just come up with a way to count it. And if you write them in a little grid where... Um, along uh, each diagonal, the numerator and denominator add up to add up to a specific number. So you you can write it as a grid. So it's like one, and then a half to the right of it, and two over one to below it. Um, and then, uh, hey, am I getting this right? Am I getting it the right way around? Yeah. So then it would be like two thirds. I'm gonna, uh, and then three over two, and then you count it diagonally. You kind of like go one across, and then. Th- down and then you just zigzag through this through this grid okay i'm really it's impressed not... by do you know what i've never seen someone react it's, it's a typical comedian thing you think you know what i really ballsed up that explaining why galaxies that are further away can look closer but you wait once i get the maths out everyone is going to forget <laughs> about that entirely and go oh he's the infinity guy they won't know anything yeah. about the galaxy close up further away thing that's long forgotten as long as no one mentions it immediately afterwards so so basically it's probably going to be easier if you look up the actual picture but uh but if you can picture just um 
like a little a little grid where along the top like a, a complete rectangle where along the top it's like a, one, a, one over one then one over two then one over three then one over four one over five and then the next line below goes two over one then two over two then two over three then two over four then two over five and so on and the line below that goes three over one three over two three over three and then you can just you can just count it in this sort of um little diagonal path where you just kind of zigzag go one across and then diagonally down and then one down, and then diagonally up three, then one across, then diagonally down four, then one down, then diagonally up five, and so on. And that's how it works. And and yes, we we are much we're much more in my happy place right now. Robert, okay. you are correct. <laughs> this is so it only becomes a bigger infinity when you just add irrational numbers. That's the next step above that. Yeah. So so then the the next thing Cantor did. So you you start to think like, okay, so are every are all infinities the same? Is there a way of counting every kind of infinity? Um. And then he showed he he proved that you can't do that with the the real numbers. So the set of real, real numbers. Is, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So the set of real numbers is every every number. We're not including imaginary numbers with the like square root of negative one, but every number that can be written as a decimal, whether that is a finite decimal that stops or a recurring decimal, um, or a non-recurring decimal. So like the square root of two or pi. Um, and everything that can be written as a decimal. So let's just take the ones between zero and one. So you've got zero point, and then every kind of decimal uh, possible, uh, the infinite ones, the finite ones, and you just write them in a list. And it's going to be a proof by contradiction, because you're going to assert that you can, if they're countable, it is in theory, there would be a way to write them in a list and write the rational numbers next to them. So this is the first rational, the first real number, then the second real number, then the third real number, then the fourth. It would be possible to count them. And then he constructed a a number that doesn't exist in that in that list. And all you do is you just go diagonally down there. So you just write all of the rational, all of the real numbers down in this list, this infinite list. And then you construct this number that is zero point something different from the first one in the list then something different from the second one in the list, then something different from the third one in the list. So say the first decimal point uh, on the first line is a 1. You just point 0.2. And then let's say the second decimal place on the second one in the list is a 4. Well, you just make that a 5. And then the third one on the third place in the list is a 0. Well, you make that a 1. the only thing you have to be careful about is with nines because nines can roll over. So you just make you'll just make a nine or seven, uh, and what you've done is constructed a number that is not on the list. So it's a proof by contradiction because you've started off by asserting that every number can be written down in this list, in this numbered list, and now you found this new one that isn't. So you found something that does that is bigger than the infinity that you have found before. So even though the even numbers are the same size as the counting numbers and even the fractions are the same size as the counting numbers once you start adding in things like the square root of two or pi you end up with something that is a bigger infinity okay let's I, get back to the james webb telescope the, uh, yeah i'm i'm much more let, let's, let's i get i back really to the I, I think people bell. probably skipped let's, over quite a lot of that yeah, let's, apologies let, let's some get lessons. back to you know uranus and uh understanding the upper atmosphere and what that's going let, let's do we've gone way beyond the tangible i feel now <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I mean. Maths is always fascinating. You know, people are logic comics. Have you ever read logic comics? 
It, it, I have not. It was a wonderful book that was basically about Bertrand Russell's ad- adventure, in particular in mathematics, and why ultimately he then, you know, um, you know the story. He wrote Principia Mathematica with, um, oh God, what's his name? Uh, Double-barreled name. Uh, I haven't got any of his books nearby, otherwise I would say. But but you know, it was that book that they spent about three hundred pages pr- tr- proving that one plus one equals two, uh, <laughs> and not uh, Whitehead. Alfred Northwire, Al- that's and, and and then you know he he was he was hoping that he would have something truly tangible that could be, and he realised that you know finding that that I think like you know a few mathematicians, um, and others as well, that hope that you will find one truth that means you have found the truth of the universe or some truth within the universe and then you go this is harder than i'd imagined now let's deal with set theory oh this is even worse <laughs> and and then you find out from girdle that you can't even do it perfectly yeah it's, the, the it's, whole it's impossible thing, yeah. to there is um i i rem- remember when when we started arguing with our math teacher about like you can't have the square root of minus one that's not a real number him just saying like well show me a three point us a three no, like not the concept not three of three apple. yeah, yeah. Not, not three apples not, not three fingers show me a three in, in, the, in life in nature and that was the first point where I started going oh yeah numbers are just sort of like signifiers of a concept they're not actually innate things that or show me a exist. negative number in the world besides taking an apple away. Show me, yeah, what, what does a negative right. number look yeah. like? Right, yeah, you go like, what, what is, well, minus five degrees Celsius. That's not, no, that's just like, it is five degrees colder than this arbitrary zero point. See, that reminds me, there's a lovely uh, Brian Green who I, I love talking to and I think is such a, a great, his last book in particular, absolutely wonderful book. And he talks about having a little nightmare every now and again that when the extraterrestrials finally visit, they go, oh, we used to think maths was the language of the universe as well. And it's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Not even sure how to process that. Yeah, it's actually Welsh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The language um, of love. While we are talking about language, I I think I would be letting we'd be letting our listeners down. All of our listeners who sent in that this might be this is certainly up there with the most sent in stories of the last few months. Uh, listener Jim Sardonic sent it in. Listener Paul Muxworthy. Listener um, uh, there is at least one more. Jeff Lockhart sent it in as well. Uh, dolphins taste their pals pee <laughs> to identify them mm. uh, and um, listener Jeff Lockhart added the um, little piece of extra information in the uh, in his email the headline tells the whole story <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this is the international this is the universal language then you're in scent yeah the language of the universe yeah so uh it, it, again like different listeners sent in the same story from different publications this is the cnet version of it uh but dolphins don't have a sense of smell but they can follow friends by their flavor uh new research suggests that the marine mammals actually know the taste of their friends more specifically they can rec- recognize comrades by sampling their urine this is researchers from the university of st andrews who said our study presents the first case of identity perception by taste alone in animals it's long been known that individual dolphins can identify themselves and others by their unique signature whistles, but the new research shows they can track their friends coming and going through taste. 
that the use of taste is highly beneficial in the open ocean because urine plumes will persist for a while after the animal has left, reads the study. They worked with dolphins at the Dolphin Quest facilities in Bermuda and Hawaii, and they found that when they were exposed to samples of urine from other dolphins they lived with, they would linger three to four times longer than they would from urine samples from unfamiliar dolphins. And then in another phase of the experiment, the scientists played either the matching signature whistle of the dolphin whose urine was being sampled, or the whistle of a different mismatched dolphin. Uh, And again, the dolphins lingered longer with the urine sample when it matched the whistle of the dolphin it came from. All this suggests that dolphins taste pee to see who's who in the same way that dogs sniff butts. Uh, And it also said, in case you're wondering if dolphins might be using their sense of smell rather than taste, it's a little known fact that dolphins have an underdeveloped sense of smell, and studies have suggested their sense of taste is limited to saltiness. Perhaps this helps them distinguish a buddy's pee from the surrounding saltwater ocean. Just on that one spectrum of saltiness, you can tell... Wow. I don't know. But the but research again, that's has explained... that interesting thing, isn't it, which brings us back to our frame of reference, that we yeah. always believe that what we are experiencing, those kind of, you know, the secondary sensations that we experience, whether it be colour or whether it be taste, we imagine that we're kind of getting the big view. We're getting the proper view, and all animals are either getting the wrong colour or the wrong taste, whatever. And then once you go, no, 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 this is, you know, this evolved senses that allow the secondary perceptions to be the best version of those secondary perceptions for our survival means that you know the the, the possible you know we, again it's very hard for us in the same way it's, we can never explain the taste that we experience except by talking about other tastes and we have no idea if i say it tastes like chocolate well actually it might turn out that your taste of chocolate is entirely different we you know the limitations that we have of being able to actually share our sensory experiences is again something that i find um utterly fascinating and then when you read something like this about the the experiences of kind of what is a salty taste that reminds us again of the limitations our own personal limitations and the different vocabulary that other creatures have yeah and even to link it back to james webb it's the same way that i only relatively recently sort of wrapped my head around the fact that there's this bias towards visual light as that's light and other things are other things no we just evolved to have these orbs in our head that detect Mm. electromagnetic radiation within this one band because that's the band that represents the bulk of the energy the sun is putting out so infrared is still just vibrate you know it's alternating electric and magnetic fields it's just slightly longer wavelength and the telescope it's looking for that it's not like it's looking for something that isn't light it's still light we don't see it with our eyes but it's just as much electromagnetic radiation as you know x-rays gamma rays visual light it's all the same it's just different frequencies and we're just stuck with these spheres in our skulls that that detect the parts that come out uh, in largest quantity from the sun I found one of the thinking of those different qualities we very often we talk about the difference between uh us and other species and species by species and I remember chatting to a neuroscientist who said that when he was young and he was first kind of he sat up a tree with another neuroscientist they were uh undergraduates and they became fascinated with thinking we always think there's human consciousness but actually there's probably a huge range of human consciousness and not everyone has the same amount of consciousness of course it's seen as a very dodgy area to examine but even in that fact that some people have a very very busy mind that won't shut up and is not necessarily advantageous at all and some people will say oh, i just have a lovely quietness and then sometimes i think of something nice and it's you know again all of the, <laughs> the range that exists before we even start going into other species within our own species yeah 
yeah, it does seem like a dangerous road to go down, but of course we all have different experiences of the world, so why wouldn't it be the case that there's different consciousness? But I, I'm pretty sure my one is the right one. Right, of course. Oh, no, your one. I've seen your stand-up. There's no one. Everyone says that's what a human is meant to be. <laughs> you, you, you are seen as... I know that the next time they send up anything like Voyager or Pioneer and they need to do a sketch of a naked man, they've said Matt Kirshen with a thought bubble with one of his better thoughts will definitely be placed in there. <laughs> yeah. I've actually been sending in my own sketches of myself naked to most uh, space agencies. and Is it like Vitruvian Matt? Are you doing like the <laughs> yeah. arms of the snow angel sort of thing? or? Yeah, it's exactly that. Uh, I mean, you know, the circles are off because I'm malproportioned. But <laughs> yeah, I do remember now because we're doing a monkey cage from uh, JPL, from the Jet Propulsion Lab. And uh, we did suggest you as one of the guests. And literally the moment you're naked, they went, nope. No, 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 no. Every single day, our mailman, who has terrible sciatica now, brings in another whole heap of his strange genital-based drawings. Yeah, and also, with, with now he's actually placing them on plaques that he's using acidification <laughs> prose. It's getting even harder. Yeah, I think probably. I, I feel a bit bad about the weight of my etchings. Yeah. Just the... <laughs> It probably, you know, it does add a certain amount of extra uh, mass to the average mailbag, but... Um... Who's broken into uh, the uh, the launch site? Oh, I can see him now with his electronic <laughs> screw- screwdriver and his plaque desperately trying to get onto the rocket before it blasts. <laughs> By the way, speaking of that plaque, uh, wasn't there some news about Voyager sending back some odd signals recently? Oh, I've not heard about see. this. Tell me. Um, let me I mean, link to the Salon article because that came up first. I'm not sure that's the best resource for it. But um, I mean, first of all, amazing that, uh, that both Voyagers are about as old as I am. They were launched, I think, a few months after I was born. And the fact that we have technology from then that's still operational is is mind boggling to me. And that it's now these are the farthest things humans have created. They're, wait, what's the way you're phrasing that? There's nothing farther away from us that we have launched yeah, these they, things. They, they are the furthest away human-made objects in 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 existence. Because they were. What are the two things that have been faster since? Because for a very long period of time, those were the fastest things that human beings had created. But there's, the fastest, you said. Yeah, there's now two. There's two other things, aren't there? Which I think are much. Well, the the Pluto. Now I'm forgetting its name, but uh, the one that your friend worked on, Andy. Oh, uh, New Horizons. Was that faster? Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that, yeah New Horizons okay. was. But it hasn't passed the Voyagers yet. So it says no. uh, Voyager 1 is about 14.5 billion miles away from Earth. Um, it passed through the heliopause in 2012, which is the barrier separating the sun's solar winds from the interstellar medium, or all the matter and radiation that exist in the space in between various solar systems in the galaxy. Uh, so it's literally in the interstellar void of the Milky Way. And so it doesn't, even like, it doesn't even count as being in our solar system anymore. No, no. That it's was Car- an interesting Jimmy thing, wasn't machine. it, when they were trying to work out exactly what do you call the boundary of the solar system well there has to be a sort of there has to be a relatively arbitrary nature to it because there isn't such a thing as not affected by the gravity from the sun yeah even the furthest even even like the furthest star in the furthest galaxy from us is to an extent under the effect of the gravity of our sun even though it's to a such an infinitesimal level that it's not even worth considering Mm. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. Is it like the sort of discussions as to where space starts as well? Oh, we yes. sort of just have to pick pick something at some point and make it a yeah, nice like round what, number. Yeah, like what officially counts as being high enough up to be you went into space, and how much is just no, you just sort of skirted the the atmosphere. 
and I think it's 100 kilometers, which I think they just picked because it's a power of 10, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's 62 miles, 100 kilometers. Um, so yeah, so Voyager, it's the readouts from its attitude, articulation, and control system don't reflect what's actually happening on board. Uh, on the surface, the AACS appears to be working, but all the telemetry data that is, is sent back is invalid, such as by appearing to be randomly generated or physically impossible, which raises questions. Suzanne Dodd, who's the project manager for Voyager 1 and 2 at JPL, said, a mystery like this is sort of par for the course at this stage of the Voyager mission. The spacecraft is, the spacecraft are both almost 45 years old, which is far beyond what the mission planners anticipated. I'm sure, that's crazy. And uh, it's also an interstellar space, so it's a high radiation environment that no spacecraft have flown in before. And they said there are some other big challenges for the engineering team, but uh, they think if there's a way to solve this issue with the AACS, their team will find it. That's an issue. I wonder even what proportion of the people who originally worked on it are still alive. Yeah. It's because if it was launched 45 years ago and a significant proportion of those people who worked on it would have been, you know, middle-aged. Probably, I don't know, maybe like young 1970s NASA, maybe it was all sort of 21-year-old whiz kids, but I imagine like a significant number of them were in their 40s, 30s, 40s. There are people, this thing has outlived its its original crew by quite some way, I would have thought. Or by but that's, a that's the beauty of that thinking, isn't it, where, where you see the kind of better side of humanity, which is people working on projects which they know will not be fulfilled, as, as of course a, a lot of the, the uh, projects of space exploration. Or I remember talking to Seth Shostak. You've probably spoken to Seth, haven't you, from, from SETI? No, we haven't. Ah, Seth from SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And, and, you know, I was chatting to him once and, and talking about, you know, how much it mattered to him whether we did manage to trace something that appeared to be from a form of intelligent life in the universe and he said the way I look at it he said it's like cancer research I might not live long enough to hear but I know that I was part of the thing that built the ladder I was part of the thing that built the tube I was part of the thing that built and that I think is a great way you know to have that ability when so much of it is just, of our life is I need this now I need this now I need this now and then actually just to go no the delayed gratification that might be so delayed that I will never even be gratified <laughs> nevertheless yeah I can do mm-hmm. that when, when most politicians won't even put sort of you know a, a sort of social program into place that's going to pay off in six years time yeah, because yeah, that yeah. won't help them get elected in three years time and the, yeah, this guy's dealing with stuff that is going to pay off maybe in fifty years. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's 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 one of the better pieces of of kind of human hopefulness. Um, I have to tell you, by the way, that I have seven percent battery. Oh, <laughs> so I've just Probably added it now. To... I was told, by the way, anyone listening to this, they said we'd like some form of artificial jeopardy as we go into the second <laughs> hour because we record this in Hollywood and that's what they like. So I've I've added the seven percent battery. We do. We've Stakes only got seven percent of fuel left, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and and by the and and if we don't if we don't actually finish the podcast before Robin's computer runs out, then he's stranded in the podcast forever. Yeah, it's, it's like if you die in a dream. Yeah, yeah. I have had, this has been a very, I'm having a lot of celebrity-based dreams at the moment. The other day I dreamt, I know telling dreams is boring, but mine's not, had David Bowie in it. We were having a lovely time, me and David Bowie, but then I got COVID. And then last night I was told to play the drums for the Beatles, which was terrible because I have no idea how to play drums. And I kept putting off telling John Lennon and Paul McCartney. George wasn't there for some reason that I didn't really know. And then eventually Ringo came in and he was furious and saying, well, we wish you told us this earlier. And I just left. 
<laughs> I was fully expecting John, even in the dream, to do some dig. But uh, then you and Ringo have something in common. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you what. The script writer is sacked from my dreams. Okay. They missed out a lot of good gag opportunities. <laughs> well, well. How about um, how about we finish up the main ep- the main episode and then. We add Jeopardy to the little extra story that we sure do for the Patreon thing. patrons. Yes. Who may or may not, who get six and a half percent's worth of battery. Yeah, of, let's see how story. much we can. <laughs> but, um, Robin, where can our listeners find you? Firstly, you, you still have a significant amount of the North American tour left. Yeah, to go we've with, got, with if, Ryan. if you go to cosmicshambles.com, cosmicshambles.com is where I write a daily blog post about doing the tour that I'm doing with Brian, the Horizons tour uh, about black holes and other things. And that's where I put all the other stuff as well that you can find that I kind of make with my friend Trent and lots of interviews with, with scientists and, and authors. And then uh, if you just go, I mean, basically, yeah, we're, we're, the tour starts again very soon. We're doing uh, three more dates in, in Canada, Edmonton, Calgary and Vancouver, all of which are nearly sold out. And then we're doing Seattle. And then we just keep going down. Portland, uh, I know Portland's got plenty of tickets, by the way. Seattle, very few. Portland, plenty. Uh, Houston, plenty of tickets. Uh, and then we're also in LA and Sacramento and uh, Austin. And yeah, there's a... There's, a, 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 there's, there's San Jose, I San saw Jose, in there as well, San which Diego. is Silicon Valley show. Yeah, San Diego. So, so, so basically we, 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 we're, we're drifting down the West Coast. San Francisco again, we're going back there and then we will pop into, I think we're doing about five dates in Texas as well. Uh, that's great, and then, and also you've got what's you've got another book coming out soon, and you've got yeah, your I've got a book out. about. I, I did a, a tour of 110 bookshops uh, around the British Isles, uh, and it's about books and bookshops that I, I've written a book called Bibliomaniac, and then the book uh, The Importance of Being Interested, which is got a forward by Brian, uh, and is all about lots of different scientific ideas. And I interviewed people like uh, Jane Goodall and Rusty Schweikart from uh, Apollo Nine, and and many others, and th- that is coming out in paperback very soon as well. Fantastic! Like you, I, I'd imagine most of our listeners are already familiar with Robin's work, but if they're not, just get on it because everything. If you listen to this show and they like the show, then you will like everything Robin does. Thanks, man. Uh, and and you're on. Are you on? So, I never remember which social media you're on these days. Oh, I'm on. Yeah, I'm generally. I'm, I, I I think you'll find me somewhere on Twitter and somewhere on Instagram and somewhere on 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 Facebook. Sometimes intermittent and sometimes there. You know when you're really on tour and you're so bored and you can't sleep and you think that's too much tweeting. But I got nothing else to do and I can't focus on reading a book. So, so find him on all of those. But cosmicshambles.com, that's the main place to find him. You can find us probablyscience.com individually at probablyscience. Uh, sorry, at probablyscience on Twitter individually at Andy T Wood at Matt Kirshen, at Jesse Case as well uh, uh, for Jesse who is not with us today. And then probablyscience@gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, stories you'd like us to cover. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And yeah, it's Patreon been a patrons. Uh, Five, four, four percent of battery. We'll see. We'll see Ooh. what we can get out of we'll this. Get a couple of still on five. Yeah. We're still on five. Go for it. All right. All right. All right.